Please uh, take your Bibles or devices and turn with me to that text in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Now, there's a classic children's book, The Giving Tree, that has been a favorite of many people over the years. Of course, like many children's works in our day and age, it is not without its detractors, especially in a highly politically charged, polarized, uh, politically correct culture like ours. And since this book has some allegorical overtones to it, just like some passages in the Bible that tend to be misinterpreted because they are allegorical, so too is this 40-plus-year-old book by Shel Silverstein. Now, as the title suggests, this book is about a tree that always gives to a boy. And when the boy is young, the tree gives the boy apples from its branches to eat. It gives the boy a place to climb and play, as well as shade under which he can rest. Well, when the boy returns to the tree as an adult, after a long absence, the tree gives again. It gives the young man now wood from its branches in order for him to build a home. Its apples then can also be sold for financial gain. And it has a trunk for the man to construct a boat where he can sail away from his life's worries. Now, this fictional account loses many of us rural folk at that juncture because we know that apple trees do not possess enough wood to build a house from. You'd have to cut the whole orchard down in order to do that, especially if you're trying to build a house from among the branches, or it doesn't possess enough wood in the trunk to build a sailboat that you can sail away uh, with your worries with. But we do know that when small branches are pruned off of the apple tree and they are dried, they are fabulous to cut up in small pieces and put in our smokers for smoking meat. So we understand that. But nonetheless, this is how the fairy tale goes. The tree keeps on giving. It keeps on being generous. And the young man keeps on receiving. What I want you to catch here, though, is each time there's an act of giving by the tree, and then you flip the page. I'm a grandparent with seven small grandchildren under four and a half. I, I've got this down pat now. You flip the page and it's going to give you the answer. And the page says, the tree was happy. Now notice, it doesn't say that the boy was the one who was happy for what he received. The book teaches that the tree was the one who found joy in the act of giving. Now sadly, life in our culture has conditioned many of us to believe that we are in this world simply to receive. So often people think their lives are the best and most meaningful when they pile up all kinds of resources to take care of themselves. And the Bible, however, takes a different approach. It says that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And that the good life, that true joy and true happiness in life, when they come our way, it's not because we're stockpiling stuff for ourselves. It's not when we're simply spending our lives consuming and hoarding and focusing on our own well-being. No, the Bible teaches that when you turn the page, that life becomes good when we dare to live beyond ourselves, when we share with others who are in need, when we become, if you will, the giving tree and find our joy in ministering to those around us who have legitimate needs. Now, the book of Proverbs teaches us that developing this kind of joyous, happy, 
generous lifestyle takes wisdom. Stating it succinctly, generosity requires wisdom. In, in the first 12 verses of Proverbs that we have studied exclusively now for the last month, we have learned what it's meant to trust in God. And we're to do that with all our hearts. And when we trust in God with all our hearts, God provides benefits as a result of doing that. Now, as we turn our attention from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, verse 35, we learn what it means to know God in all of our ways. In all our ways, acknowledge Him, and then God is the one who's going to make our path straight. This means that we're to find wisdom. Look at verses 13 through 15 in chapter 3. It says, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare to her. We learn as well as we're looking through these verses that, that wisdom means clearly walking with God. This is a daily, ongoing, regular uh, a walk with God. Look at verse 23. It says, then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. In all your ways, if you're acknowledging God and you're gaining wisdom and, and, and pursuing wisdom and learning wisdom, you're not going to go through life stumbling. Look at verse 26. For the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. Now, when we come to verses 27 to 28, which tell us that generosity requires wisdom, we immediately learn that we have to make a decision here. Verse 27 again. Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it is in your power to act. We either say, God says, give a thumbs up to this, or we give a thumbs down, because we have to make a decision here. Are we going to do good for those whom good is due, or are we not going to? Now, I want you to notice here that this call to generosity that wise people pursue in their lives is given to us as a prohibition. It says, do not say to your, or do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. It's given as a negative, a prohibition. And allow me to share with you a little secret on biblical studies. When you see a prohibition in the Bible, spend some time focusing on the opposite. So if you see in the Bible, do not lie, take a few moments and ponder the value of honesty. You know, when I was a college in college, my senior year back in 1981 and 82, I was required to take a class on human relations. And it was required for the teacher's education uh, curriculum. And uh, it was filled with a lot of, honestly, progressive, socialist, even some Marxist-leaning kinds of concepts. And in this course I was taking, I was constantly having to try and represent a biblical worldview. And as, and, and as a result of that, I was often criticized in the class. I was publicly scorned. One time I was even called a bigot by classmates. This is back in 1982. I was called a bigot. And even the professor of the class said to me, young man, you have a very narrow perspective on life, which the professor meant to be the ultimate gotcha body slam in this secular humanistic state-run university 
but I actually took it as a compliment because Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 say, for wide is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. The truth be told, I actually thought that my professor and many of my classmates back then were the ones who were narrow-minded because they were closed-minded to any other options that were out there except what they believed in life. I could listen to what they were saying, and I could try to dialogue and debate with them, but they wouldn't debate whatsoever the opposite direction. They simply tried to force you into their way of thinking. And I was, every class, I was kind of forced to raise my hand and present a Christian perspective on this particular issue. Well, one of our class sessions was devoted to religion in America, and the subject turned to Dr. Jerry Falwell and the moral majority, and a number of the students got real exercised, and they were spouting off all kinds of vitriol about the moral majority pushing their religious rights agenda upon America, and they even started to trash the Ten Commandments, and I sat there, and I took it as long as I could, and slowly I you know, got the courage to put my hand up in the class. And I mentioned that, you know, many people here are complaining about the Ten Commandments. I said, thou shalt not steal. Wouldn't it be wonderful to, to leave your home any given day, leave it unlocked, and never have to worry that your house would never be plundered, that you would never be robbed, no one would ever come and take anything that you have, or you shall not commit adultery? Wouldn't it be something to get married and never have to worry that your spouse would ever be unfaithful to you the rest of your life? You could be devoted to one another. Or, you know, you shall not be killed, thou shalt not kill. Wouldn't it be something to walk down any major city street in this country, any inner city in this country, and you would never have to worry about ever being assaulted, robbed, beaten, left for dead, or gunned down in the city streets? Wouldn't that be something? And I shared all of those, you know, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Wouldn't it be something to ever go into the court of law and you knew that everybody was going to tell the truth? You'd never have to worry about anybody that was ever going to lie about you or what you've done or what you've said in your life. Wouldn't that be something to live like that? And the professor and the students in the class sat there totally silent. See, they had no answer. So let me encourage you to use this Bible study method when you study the Bible. You know, when I taught confirmation for over two decades, when we would come to the Ten Commandments, I would always ask the students to try and restate them into positive ways. Like, like for instance, you shall not kill. And they would come up with things like, wow, we should respect all of life. Or you shall not steal. And they would say, we should respect everyone's property. Or thou shalt not commit adultery. That we should cherish our spouse for the rest of our lives. Chapter uh, 3 here, verse 1 says, do not forget my son. Do not forget my teaching. Solomon's saying to Rehoboam, don't forget. It's a prohibition. But, but what it's asking us to do really is to spend some time thinking how important it is to follow the teaching of the Lord. See, every prohibition in the Bible has a positive message behind it. And it's not just trying to keep us from sin, but it's because it wants us to experience the blessing of a lifestyle that is truly opposite of the way most people live. 
So verse 27 says, do not withhold good from those whom it's due. This is a call in the positive sense to generosity. It's an invitation to live beyond ourselves, to experience the joy and the peace of helping others. Now, the basis of all giving, of course, is God. Verse 27 says, when it is in your power to act. And we are to give this to those whom it's due. Let's unpack this verse for a couple of moments here. The word those means the owner in the sense of the rightful owner. We might have something, but technically, we don't really own it. That's what it's saying there. Now, many understand this as representing Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 13, which says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. When we owe something, we are to pay it. Now, one of the ties in the Old Testament was that the Israelites were to give an extra 10% every three years. And this would be used to help out those in need. This was basically their social service program in Israel. So you would actually be giving three plus extra percent a year, but it was every three years it was required that you gave it. But it amounted to giving 13 and one-third plus percent of your, your income every single year. And that three plus percent would be used to take care of those in need in Israel. So whatever we owe, Proverbs teaches, should be paid. If we have some goods that were delivered to us, then we should be paying for them. If there were services that were rendered to us, we should pay for those. If there's labor that's been accomplished, it should be paid to the real owners. That means the ones who rightfully own it, those who provided that service, who provided that labor, who gave us or passed on those goods to us. It is no longer ours anymore because it's theirs, it's owed to them. Now, the one thing about the Hebrew language is that it often uses play on words, especially in poetic sections like what we see here in the book of Proverbs. In verse 27, it says that we have the power when it's in your power to act. And it happens to be the Hebrew word el, uh, which based upon the context here means our ability, our capacity, our power to actually do something about the situation. But I want you to understand that L in the Old Testament is also, uh, in, in an abbreviated form, can mean God. It's a short form for Elohim. And again, the context would tell us if L is used, which one it means. Is it power, capacity, something we possess, or is it referring to God? But as a play on words, uh, we have the power to act because God is the one who's given us the ability and given us the opportunity to do so. And it's His grace that's the basis of all giving. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Jesus said in Matthew 10.8, Freely you have received, freely give. So we owe a debt. Now, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, it talks of governing authorities having been placed into our lives uh, for our good and for the good of society. And uh, in verses 6 through 8, it reads as follows. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, 
pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. The only thing that should continue to be out there before us that we have to continue to pay every single day is love because it's never completely paid for. We pay one day and the next day. We pay and the next day we pay. But all of our other things, we pay for them. You pay your property taxes at the end of July. Now you don't pay your property taxes until the end of January again. Uh, We pay those things, but love is a thing that we pay for each and every day. 1 John 4, 17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, that means no mercy, no love, no love for them, how can the love of God be in that person? So let me ask you today, are you a loving, generous person? Have you experienced the joy of giving in your life. See, generosity requires wisdom, and we all have decisions to make regarding it. Are we going to be for it, or are we going to be opposed to it? We owe a debt of love to others. This means that we have to come to the place where we learn to live beyond ourselves. And the good news is, if we can, by God's grace, because of the he's the basis of all giving, we can actually do this. Now, verse 28 in this text goes on to teach us that we ought to be good to our neighbors. And please know that the Bible doesn't call us to simply seek out the poor uh, as our focus of ministry strictly, or to give away everything that we have so we have nothing left and we become impoverished ourselves. It doesn't teach that. Generosity, as directed by God, involves the hard work of wisdom. It involves the hard work of discernment, the hard work of stewardship, being good managers of what God has entrusted us with, and it involves prayer. And personally, I think, if you're a couple, it also involves good communication skills because it's something you have to talk about. That's all part of the sacrifice of giving. Now, godly responses to people in need are never to be the subject of anger. They're not to be about greed. They're not to be about the whims of other people or even our personal emotions. It is in response to those it's due. Or some translations of verse 27 say here, to those who deserve it. What this means is that the desire of the righteous man or the righteous woman of God is only good. They want God's moral good to be accomplished. They want to do what is viewed as just in this world. So let me read verse 28. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I will give it to you when you already have it with you. And neighbor here is a friend. Neighbor here is another person. It has the connotation here of someone in the weaker sense or someone who's in a disadvantaged position. They have no leverage over you. There's not much they can do, and you have the power and the ability to do something, and you have it right there, then in those cases, God says, you need to respond. You already have it. It's in your possession. It's in your keeping. Your power to act is right there, and you can act immediately. 
Now, there's an old age-old saying that he gives twice who gives promptly. In other words, not only are you meeting that need at that immediate moment, but you're also building the other person up. You're building up their morale, their faith, their spirit, and they are enriched because you have met that need, but you've also enriched them in other ways. Now, what Proverbs teaches here is that how we treat others in this area is a testimony of our faith. It bears witness to our God. Now, again, back to Romans 13, and now I'm going to read for you verses 9 and 10. And here's what it says. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and listen to this part, and whatever other command there may be. We're kind of talking about a command here this morning, aren't we? Do not withhold good from those who deserve it. Whatever command there may be are summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And the Bible teaches that we ought to be good to our neighbors. Now, I want to return to this notion that our mission in Christ is not strictly to seek out the poor and not strictly to seek out the needy. You know, when Jesus was here and his feet were anointed just shortly before his you know, death on the cross and his burial, uh, he, by Mary Magdalene, uh, Judas, the treasurer, was really upset. And remember what he said? We could have spent that money on the poor. We could help the poor for over a year. This was expensive perfume. Remember what Jesus said? The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The Apostle Paul, even when he went all over these Gentile churches and took up this collection for the poor and those that had been ravaged by a famine back in Israel, uh, fellow believers back in Israel, most Bible scholars believe that when he and his entourage were bringing back these, this collection that he brought back to Jerusalem and brought back to those that were hurting in the Palestinian region, they passed by all kinds of orphans, all kinds of widows, all kinds of people in need along the way. But they were bringing this gift back to the ravaged, famine-ravaged Palestinian region, to Israel, to those fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, back in this famine-torn area. And even the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us some insightful things here in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I invite you, if you have your Bibles open, to turn with me there. And I believe that God places fellow believers in Christ in our lives who we can help, as well as neighbors and friends. And he does all of this by his wise providence. Everybody's our neighbor, but we can't help everybody. But there are certain people God places into our lives that we should be responding to. Look at verses 25 through 29 here. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, love God and love your neighbor 
and you're going to be okay. Jesus says, that's it. Now, you have to understand this parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along very well. The Assyrians had invaded, overthrown the northern kingdom, and a number of the Jewish people that lived in the northern kingdom had intermarried with the Assyrians. It was a common strategy for overtaking a culture back then. You just create these intermarriage issues and situations, and pretty soon the desire to, be, to overthrow the invading government disappears. So between the former northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the, the Jews that lived in the southern kingdom were pretty hostile toward the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were hostile toward them. They weren't good neighbors, and they didn't live as good neighbors. Well, look at verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They beat him, uh, of his clo- uh, beat him uh, uh, took his clothes, and, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, it doesn't say this man was a Jewish man, but in all likelihood, because he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's probably who he was. And this was not a man who was in need of a high-definition television. It wasn't somebody who needed a newer cell phone. This was somebody who was beaten and robbed and left for dead, and he was in a tough place. And so who comes along? The priest and the Levite, and they should have helped him. And that tells us that this is probably a Jewish man because they kept sneaking by on the other side of the path. But now look at verse uh, 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, He took pity on him. Again, he had compassion for him. He had love for him. Now, this Samaritan who happened upon the man probably wasn't out just spending his days looking for the latest beat-up, wounded Jewish man. That probably was the furthest thing from his mind. But look at verses 34 and 35. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put this man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, he didn't subsidize this man for the rest of his life. He only, he only rescued him from his desperate need of the moment. And verses 36 and 37, and Jesus was saying to this expert in the law, which of these three do you think? was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, the point of this is that God providentially brings people for us to minister into our lives, and he gives us the capacity to meet the needs that we ha- they, they might have or have. And we ought to be good to our neighbors. Our neighbors are the ones that God places in our lives who have legitimate needs. Now, everything that we have in life has been given to us as a trust, meaning to be used for good. The time that we have, the talents that we have, the experiences in life that have been given to us, our knowledge, our wisdom, our relational skills, our communication skills, our wealth, the gifts we have, our aptitudes, our abilities, they're all given in trust to be shared with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and with the world and the community around us. 
Now, this week I stopped over to see one of the men in our church who's battling cancer. In fact, he has been battling it for years, and he and his dear wife and their children and grandchildren have all been facing this horrendous invader courageously together. And this man, having been an excellent teacher, an excellent educator, excellent administrator and coach and church member, uh, a finance board member for nine years and a church council member for nine years, uh, reminded me of the teaching of this particular passage. And in the many decades that I've known him, I witnessed time and time again his selfless love for others for students that he taught and, and, uh, and held authority over, for the athletes that he coached, for those that were engaged in the arts, and, and for many, uh, even my own children, who all were under uh, his discretion and leadership, for the poor in our community who he worked for tirelessly to help, for our own church and for our community at large. And he always had this great big smile on his face, and, and I believe that's because the Bible teaches that the most joyous life occurs when we live generous lives. Yes, that might have been part of his personality, but I also think because he lives such a generous life, that's the joyous life that's out there to live, you know? And he always demonstrated that whenever he gave his financial reports at our church council meetings and membership meetings. He was always so full of hope and always so full of faith. And once when we were facing an important decision. We faced a lot of them. You don't build a six and a half million dollar building in the middle of a hayfield in the 11th poorest county in Douglas, Wisconsin, Douglas County, Wisconsin, and not face some challenging decisions. Who wants to put a white elephant in the middle of a field? Okay. But God provided this man for us to help us in some of those decisions. And many times he would make us laugh. And one time he was addressing one of the situations we were facing. But instead of saying situation, he intentionally said, we're facing here a situation. And then he smiled. And he repeated that a number of times during his report at a membership meeting. And he had us all in stitches. He had us all laughing. His joy and his optimism was infectious. You know, I want this church to know that it was one of the truly great honors of my pastorate here to go to this man's home this week and to thank him personally by reading this passage that we have studied today. And then referencing the many times that I saw or knew of him going to bat for others because he had the capacity that God had given him to do that. And then I prayed with him and his wife before leaving. The truth is, we're all going to leave this world someday. And how will people remember us? Will we be like this man I've just described and be remembered for what we have done for others? Will we be known as people who live generously toward others, who were good to our neighbors, who actually loved our neighbors and bore testimony to the God of grace whom we serve and we love? Will we leave this life daring to live beyond ourselves. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, thank you again for this opportunity to study through these first four chapters of the book of Proverbs, Direction for Life. God, we recognize that the timing of this is important in our lives, that 
It's important for us to understand in these chaotic times we find ourselves in as a nation because of God, the pandemic, and everybody's stressed. And God, even as pastors, we get criticisms from all sides, people that are mad that we're not wearing masks, people that won't come to church now that we are wearing masks. And we get everything in between, Lord. And we're we're hearing those frustrations from people. And God, we even bear some of those ourselves. And these highly politically charged times where every single thing gets politicized and all the chaos and the streets and protests and the church being denied privileges, but protesters being allowed privileges and both our First Amendment rights, all these things, God. It's so easy to get sucked into that and caught up in all of that. But God, you've extended an invitation to us through your word to continue to pay the debt that we owe the debt to love one another, to be good neighbors, to demonstrate to the world around us that we love you and we love our neighbors. We love others. And God, every single one of us are going to leave this earth someday. Some get to live longer than others, but not every single person that does live longer than others actually lives the way they should be living. And some go out earlier than others, and they've lived full, meaningful, purposeful, generous lives. And God, I pray that we can come to that place and have that kind of wisdom that we can learn to live beyond ourselves. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.